This is CliffCentral.com. the Renegade Report. We're back. Another week. Uh, another show. Ramon? Dr. Witt, how are you? Uh, yeah, doing okay. Doing okay. Uh, I'm, I'm quite upset. We didn't get much hate. Uh, previous podcast, uh, people saying it's rational and uh, logical. Uh, what's going on? No hate mail, no death threats, no pornography. It's very disappointing. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's very uh, it's very worrying. Uh, well, hopefully we can stir up some controversy uh, this time around with with the, with the show today. Absolutely so. Once we find out what we're talking about, I'm sure it'll be good. <laughs> well, originally the idea behind today was to discuss. Uh, we wanted to discuss apartheid. Uh, we wanted to discuss the legacy of that. Absolutely. What else? I wanted to discuss groupthink, the race war, 2016. And then I guess walks in and says, no, nah, fuck all that stuff. Yeah, it's a problem when that happens. Uh, you, you know, I think uh, maybe without further introduction then, or, or with a bit of a bio, because um, you know him quite well. I've just met him. Uh, seems like an approachable fellow. Uh, our guest today is Canton Pillay. Uh, just to say that uh, we were criticized for being three white guys on the show last week. So... Uh, we're trying to like spice it up a little bit. A bit of diversity. Uh, it, well, sure. And of course, if you're three white guys, what you have to say is irrelevant. So now we're two white guys and an Indian guy. Uh, so, Canton, uh, born in 1961. I don't know if you want us to know that or not. Uh, Durban, South Africa. And uh, he um, completed high school actually in India, uh, leaving South Africa in 86, shortly after the declaration of state of emergency. And uh, went and studied at uh, Princeton University, uh, political science and psychology. Returned in 1994. And in 1997 became uh, the managing editor of the Cape Times. Uh, he denies that he has anything to do with the state of that newspaper today. And uh, in 2007, he was appointed CEO of YFM. And uh, that's all I know about you. So, Canton, welcome to the show. Well, clearly Google was not your friend because if you had actually done a search, particularly in the tabloids, you would have found all sorts of interesting stuff. Uh, tell us more. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, Google is your <laughs> friend. So, <laughs> I think Roman was, was, was being your friend because uh, he, he gave me the, the nice stuff. Well, I mean, think about it. We have an hour show. I mean, we can talk about your, uh, your past um uh, issues <laughs> they will take a whole hour we could indeed and, and i think you know talking about yourself is nearly always boring so you know let's talk about someone else um yeah well <clears throat> let's uh, let's try stick to the topic and then i'm sure we will go in all directions uh we wanted to talk about apartheid uh, we wanted to talk about the legacy of that uh, because well it doesn't seem like there's any kind of real balance to that conversation uh and now we've even got sort of uh, friction on that conversation in terms of that we were sold out and, and these kinds of issues. So, I mean, you were in the thick of it. I wasn't really born. So tell me, tell me more. I think the conversation about apartheid now is boring. Okay. It, it, it's, it's fundamentally boring. And I always use the comparison that uh, if we go across to Hong Kong, Hong Kong got their independence in 1997, yeah. which was 
um, you know, a few years after we did. Now, if you look in terms of what they've managed to do in that society in pretty much the past 20 years, you know, it's going to be 20 years next year since Hong Kong was handed over from the British uh, colonial powers to um, the uh, special administrative region, you know, such as it is. Yes, you know, Beijing still has an overarching view on what mm. goes on. But at the end of the day, it is basically run by the people of Hong Kong. And they've taken that place, and uh, it's capitalism unleashed. The, the place is just incredible. You know, you see buildings all over the place. You see uh, amazing transport infrastructure, uh, probably the best shipping stuff in the world. Um, and this is a place that has zero resources. Well, uh, it almost sounds like you're telling us to move on. Uh, uh, I, I, I'm just, am I correct? Am I, wouldn't, I, I, I wouldn't dream of telling people to move on. You know, every person carries their own pain, and far be it from me to, uh, you know, pour cold water on that pain. Sure. Yes, I think we must be sympathetic. I just can't believe you use a C word so early. Capitalism. That's a, a filthy, filthy word. Uh, uh, yes, can we talk about that? Why does capitalism become a filthy word? Because people don't know what the hell it means. All right. But uh, look, we, we're digressing a bit. But uh, yes, we get back to the whole question um, uh, in terms of, uh, of apartheid and where, uh, how we ended up where we are uh, today. If you look at what happened post-1994, um, there was a brief period during which uh, the Mandela administration flirted with the idea of going down a social uh, socialist route, which was yeah. the whole reconstruction and development program. Mm. And suddenly, out of the sidelines, you know, Thabo Mbeki popped up and he said, no, actually, we are actually going to go with gear instead. And we're actually going to focus on growing this economy because that's the stuff that needs to happen. So Jay Naidu at the time was the minister who was tasked with uh, heading up the RDP. He was very quickly moved into telecommunications. Yeah. And um, capitalism, certainly the ANCG's version of it, was unleashed. Irony is they moved him into telecommunications, uh, and he's gone on to become quite the capitalist. Absolutely. So, but, uh, yes, but, but this is not about Jay. <laughs> yes. Fair enough. Fair but, enough. But, but essentially, if you look at what happened from that point onwards, um, South Africa had its biggest period of economic growth ever in the history of the country. Um, yeah. Just ignore the, the little hiccup that we had in 1998 with the Asian crisis when Things kind of went pear-shaped for a while. Mm. But the fact of the matter is that right up until 2008, in other words, during the time of the Mbeki regime, the economic growth that we had in this country was uh, pretty much remarkable. So, I mean, the ANC, I think, would view itself as a socialist organization. Uh, certainly, they're uh, in bed with the trade unions. They, they've, up until this point, at least been quite proud of that fact. Uh, is uh, you know was that selling out in a way? No, the ANC has always been a broad church in that sense, um, which is problematic in the sense that when you're a liberation movement, it's easy to be a broad church and you're catering to a range of uh, of interests. But as soon as you get to a position where, on the one hand, you've got to ensure that the country is generating enough revenue to pay for things like housing programs, to pay for things like rolling out of electrification to the masses, to pay for things like putting up clinics. And at the same time, you have trade unions who are absolutely insistent that you have to have protectionism in terms of the job market, you have to have minimum wages, and all of those things which kind of run contrary to the way in which um, – 
a free market is supposed to work. So they've always had that juggle. But I think what is true is that during the time of Thabo Mbeki, he managed to pretty much keep the unions at a level where they were manageable. Yeah. All right. Uh, so Thabo did a good job in that respect. And since then? Well, I think Thabo did a good job uh, in terms of the balancing act. Because if you look essentially in terms of the business model that the ANC adopted um, up until the time of the uh, Mbeki regime, what they did was to take the, the real dividends that accrued from uh, a relatively uh, well-performing capitalist society and then plowed that back into uplifting the lower end of the market. Which, which is exactly how capitalism works. Exactly, Because, because yes. the theory is you, you make money on the one end and you use that money to do good for everyone. Exactly. So if you look in terms of, um, uh, you know, just to go back to my current job, which is running a radio station which uh, uh, and has as its job the task of making money. And uh, one of the things that uh, I looked at at the time that I took on this job was to see what the trends were in terms of how uh, the country was prospering. And if you look in terms of the breakdown of the country by living standard measure, which is pretty much yeah. a universal currency for us in the media business. Absolutely. Who are you going to cater to? Exactly. Now, um, over a 10-year uh, period coming up to – um, from 2000 to, uh, to around about 2010, you had um, a reduction in the levels of the poorest of the poor. In other words, LSM1, mm. the number of people in LSM1 in this country dropped by 60%. And if you go to the upper end of the market to… LSM10 uh, to, to 12. So LSM, uh, LSM10 to 12, yeah. the number of black people in LSM10 to 12 increased by 500% during that period. All right. So is the argument then that, you know, transformation isn't happening quick enough, uh, everything's white capital and, and, and uh, white capital controls everything? Is, is that a spurious argument? Well, I think that white capital controls everything in a way that capital controls everything. And I think that capital right now is relatively colorless because if you look in terms of who the biggest shareholders are in these white capital groups – it tends to be people like the PIC, and it tends to be um, most uh, people who have pension funds and that type of thing. But what is really true, and I've got all of the data to back this up, mm. which I'm uh, we've, we've happy discussed to share data with you. on the yes. show. I mean, dangerous I mean, word. We haven't spoken for a while. But yes, word. swear word, eh? But but essentially, if you look in terms of uh, of the numbers, by every standard, the the ANC does have a good story to tell, right up until the time of. Um, the baton being passed <laughs> from Thabo Mbeki to Jacob Zuma. So, all right. So they've got a good story to tell. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think they've got parts of a good story to tell from my perspective. I, I think they've done some good things and some negative things. I agree with you, though, that it's difficult as a government to do kind of everything you, you sort of say and everything you promise uh, and everything everybody wants of you because that's just too broad uh, an initiative. But I mean, if you even look at the, the Chinese economy, um, they had 8 to 10% growth over 25 years, and it completely transformed them from quite a backward rural society into a highly specialized, arguably the most capitalistic country in this world. Well, except they're not really capitalist because they don't really have um – they're not really free. I don't know if you noticed that. Oh, no, but you can, you can have a communist government, so-called so communist, and have a free market. 
arguably the freest markets are the ones under communist governments. Well, I think, you know, certainly the Chinese are able to do things that one cannot do in uh, a free society. For example, the Chinese can actually move in uproot an entire village and say, sorry, guys, we're actually building a dam right here, mm. which is going to be generating hydroelectric power. Sorry for you, but we've actually created this other village for you off in this remote corner of the country, and you'll be moving there tomorrow. Yeah, and, uh, and, and that stuff kind of happens. So I, I think the Chinese model in terms of, uh, of economic growth um, is not necessarily a good one to go for. Sure. I think what's far more interesting for me is to look at India as a comparison mm. because – India is the world's largest democracy. And if you look in terms of the growth that has been happening I've in that I've forgotten country, that, actually. I, I mean, just to – sorry to interrupt, but, uh, you know, that's kind of left aside. You know, we talk about we're so interested in U.S. politics and, and European politics, but we kind of forget India as a democracy and as, as a very large democracy. Absolutely, and, and one which has been a democracy for its entire lifespan. You know, unlike uh, – uh, if, if you look at most countries in uh, in the third world, um, they they have a very dubious relationship with democracy. You know, it's the whole one man one vote once, which ends up being <laughs> a pattern in many parts of the world. Well, and it's uh, not and, the countries; it's the dictators that have a dubious relationship with democracy. Yes, but uh, India seems to have um, uh, avoided that particular trap. Yes, they had a state of emergency during Indira Gandhi's time, but immediately when the emergency was lifted, she was voted out of power. And uh, the country has functioned remarkably well. But if you look up to the point where they opened up their economy, which, you know, is probably about 10 years uh, ago, that country has been posting massive growth in, uh, in terms of their economy. They've been, now become an attractive destination for expats, primarily in the U.S., to move back to the country and start businesses. So you had all of these people who fled India yeah. to get economic opportunities in the U.S., they are now returning to India to set up businesses because there has been uh, an investment on the part of the Indians in solid education, which is another problem that we've got, you know, we, which we yeah. can come back to. But, yes, if you're looking in terms of, uh, of models of where you unleash capitalism, and the fact is that the country as a whole ends up benefiting. So, so I didn't know we were going to go here at all, but you know, if we look at India as a model, um, is, is that probably quite a good model to look at from the perspective that there's a lot of similarities in our history, at least in sort of class structures uh, that, between South Africa and India. You, you know, if, if you're going to say, well, let's try to go where they've gone, we can use that model quite constructively because we have to overcome similar challenges? I, I, I think that's a good starting point. You know, obviously drawing a direct comparison, uh, I mean, the sheer size of India, for example, I mean, it, it, it's roughly, uh, it's almost a quarter of the world's population um, that's now based in India, which, 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 which is kind of ridiculous <laughs> if you think about it. Yeah. And, um, but yes, in terms of shared history, look, uh, uh, both India and, uh, and South Africa are former British colonies, they, um, the African National Congress and, uh, and India's Congress Party have a shared history, you know, going back to the, uh, the time of, uh, uh, of Gandhi. And, of course, India was one of the biggest supporters of the African National Congress throughout uh, the apartheid era. So, Kenton, what is your opinion on economic growth, so to speak, and land? Uh, land is a, a huge issue in this country. And me, as a non-landowner, I, I rent. 
What is so special about land that people but, think? Sorry, Roman, you don't you don't own land, but you you what, Roman? You you must own land. I, I rent. No, you stole land. At some point, you must have. You've yeah. got a farm somewhere, don't you? Uh, no. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> but why why is land is land political or economic in this country? Look, I think the thing about land is that you can actually build a very compelling emotional draw card out of the subject of land. I mean, the fact of the matter is that you have – okay, here's something else that I'm fond of saying. The thing that makes South Africa different from the United States of America and Australia in that in both of those countries, white people killed off the native population. Yes, Okay, which uh, which happened to a large extent in the Western Cape because the indigenous population of the Western Cape was decimated, um, not directly by genocide but by smallpox because of the fact that uh, they, there was no immunity to it. Um, they traded blankets with the sailors um, who had been infected with smallpox. And, uh, uh, and yes, 99% of the Khoi population got, uh, got wiped out. But um, – the whole idea that the land has been stolen is quite compelling, and uh, it, it, it's a very strong emotional draw card. And I relate to that. You know that if you consider where my ancestors came from, I mean, my mother tongue is Tamil, and uh, uh, Tamil people actually had their origin in the Indus Valley, uh, you know, which is probably the oldest civilization as we know it in the sense that uh, you know it, it goes back to around about 5000 BC mm. the Indus Valley is in the middle of what is now Pakistan because essentially what happened was the Indus Valley civilization where the early Dravidians came from was then conquered by the Aryans and the Dravidian people then got pushed down into the Indian subcontinent and then the Muslims came and then pushed them further south and uh, so they are now at the southern tip of India and uh, uh, and Sri Lanka. And my question really is... When will they be know, driven into the sea? Well, you know, my point is now, how do I go back and claim the land of the Indus Valley, which is the land of my ancestors? So do you think... Uh, is there a, is there an automatic right that you should be able to? Because because how long does a... Let's say that we, we agree, which I, I don't really agree with this concept of stolen land, but uh, uh, let's say we did agree and we said, fine, the land in South Africa was stolen. Uh, and then the argument can get even more uh, in-depth in terms of who was it actually stolen from because many of the people claiming today that that the land was stolen themselves stole land. But uh, let's uh, say we agree it's a very simple concept of white stole land from black. Um, How many generations down does it go? Do you just – does it not matter if it was 10 generations ago? Well, I think if you ask white people, they'll say the time is long gone, and if you ask black people, they'll (laughs) They'll say say no, the time time will never be over. Yeah. Uh, the more practical question for me has to be, what is the best policy that uh, we end up taking forward in the national interest? In other words, what's going to be best for the country uh, in the long term? But before we can do that, don't we need a grasp of the reality? So, uh, you know, I, I made the joke about Ramon not owning land, but but that's a very serious question because I find this, this, this conversation, I'll have this conversation with someone, I had it a couple of months ago with a colleague of mine. Uh, a black gentleman, and uh, and I say that because it's important to the conversation. He he was insistent that the land had been stolen, that it must be given back. And I said to him, "Okay, I don't own any land. Uh, I happen to have a bond, so one day I will own 110 square meters of land. 
Um, but but I essentially don't own any land. So if we if we go back to the the facts, which is that the majority of the land currently in South Africa is owned by government, uh, which is the currently the ruling party or, or, uh, and tribal lands are owned by, by trust and chieftains sure so so who do you want to take the land back from isn't that an important discussion to have before we even get into the sort of intricacies well i think if we keep asking that question we'll forever be running around in circles and and this is why i think focusing on how do we actually take this forward? What's best for the country in the long term? And if we can shift the, uh, the discussion mm. in that direction, I think it's putting us in a much better position than having a discussion around, you know, whose rights are bigger than any other person's rights. Well, nobody. And, and, and how far back do you go and, <laughs> and all of those things. Okay. Because once you open that particular Pandora's box, there, there is no end to it. You can't mm. actually get to a point where you're fixing things. Now, I use um, – uh, a comparison in terms of um, Japanese people who were incarcerated by the Americans in concentration camps during the Second World War. Under the great liberal Roosevelt. Yes, under the great liberal Roosevelt, exactly. Now, um, it, it, it took quite a while, but eventually the American government capitulated and said, yes, we robbed these people blind and you know we deprived them of their human rights and they need to be compensated for it. But the point of cutoff around compensation was everyone who was directly affected mm. got a payout. So in other words, people who were still alive who had been victims of that particular policy, they were actually compensated. Okay, so and, Julius Malema doesn't get compensated in South Africa. Well, let's not personalize it by talking about <laughs> Julius Malema, but I, I think let's look in terms of what we can do right now around there, – there's – a large number of people in this country who had land directly taken away from them. So, for very specific examples. Okay. Sophia Town. Yes. Okay. Well, it was 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 a thriving place. Um, people were directly uprooted, and those people are still alive, and they've been relocated to other places. Sure. They, I believe, they should be compensated I agree because with you. absolutely yes, and they should have right of return on uh, on that land. Mm. Uh, my family was displaced from. Uh, what's now known as Block AK in uh, Gravel in Durban, okay. which has now been absolutely bulldozed. And in fact, the only building that exists there right now is independent newspapers. So, and in fact, I've written about the fact that I used to work at independent newspapers in Durban. When it was there or? <laughs> no, uh, uh, after coming back in 94. Oh, and, okay. and, you know, working on land that actually had belonged to my family sure. uh, back in the day. But I, I think that there yeah, are lots of those cases. This doesn't seem part of the dialogue, though. Because no, it isn't. And, and that's why I'm saying, how, can we please focus on how do we end up taking the country forward and actually resolving this? Sure. But, but it's not politically expedient to, to, to do so. Yes, but how often are we going to point out to people that things are not politically expedient? You see, uh, I believe that most people in this country are reasonable. I, I know that that's something that most um, people don't buy into. And certainly if you take a look at social media, it's not part of the conversation. Based, based on the downloads of our first show, we, we tend to agree with you. Most yes. people are very reasonable. And uh, in, in fact, uh, I, I think you, uh, you guys made reference to the Institute of Racial Relations uh, survey that shows that, yes, as a country, we've actually been growing closer together. Mm -hmm. now, We're not racist. We want to actually talk about that, but yes. let's, let's get over the but, land stuff first. If you're looking specifically in terms of, uh, of the land stuff, now I think everyone agrees that the majority of land in this country needs to be used for the benefit of the people of this country. I, I think we can all agree on this broadly. 
Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it, 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 it's kind of a no-brainer. Now, well, it depends what you mean, though. Like, well, what, what okay. Like we need farming. to feed the nation. Oh, right, of All right. So as a very specific example, what is the best way that we go about feeding the nation? Is the best way of feeding the nation to take an existing thriving farm and to chop it up into little pieces and hand it off to people who become subsistence uh, farmers. Or have never farmed in their lives before. Or have never farmed in their lives before. Or do you instead look at a system that's not very different to the way in which we run our minds? Because the way in which we run our minds is that people work the minds, but the royalties on those minds accrue to government. Yeah. And should we not be looking at a similar scenario in terms of our large farms. So in other words, instead of saying we're going to chop up the land and farm it out, we in fact increasingly privatize those large farms so that we get economies of scale so that we can actually go back to producing enough uh, food to feed the rest of the continent, which we can do, and just simply say that we have a model that either requires that you are paying an increased level of tax or... Um, I, I just... I just wonder. I mean, I don't really disagree with with most of what you've said, except for getting government to involved in that. But the the problem I have is that I, I think the average guy on the street who's who's kind of you know going to a political rally and demanding that the land gets paid back type of thing, uh, he's not. Uh, He's he he's not grasping any of these concepts, and it, maybe it's an educational thing. No, I think it's a way in which we fail to tell the story because I think anyone can get the idea of about the fact that of every rand that uh, the gold mines make, mm. sixty cents of that goes to the South African government, which then pays for your school fees, which then pays for your health care, and so forth. It, it's a very simple model. I think everyone actually gets that. And if you can translate it into uh, uh, into terms like that, the average person well, is going to get it. But oh, nobody I, takes the conversation to that level. Well, Everyone I've, I've never back. heard that as the conversation. And I, I would argue that if anyone understood that conversation, Marikana would never have happened. Because, frankly, uh, how could you be sort of protesting as those protests happened in lead up to that if there was understanding that's 60 cents of every rand made oh, by but, that mine. But, but Marikana, you know, we, we need to talk very differently about Marikana because I predicted the stuff that was going down in Marikana before it actually came to that. In terms of the, the violence? Yes, in terms of the violence, in, in terms of exactly what was going to happen. What was happening in Marikana was a battle for control of Union Turf, which has happened in other parts of the yeah. world. So, so thank you for saying that because uh, there are a lot of discussions in South Africa which essentially we never hear the reality behind that discussion. So uh, uh, we, we can go into fees must fall at, at some point, but uh, my standing on it since it started has very much been that it's a way of the unions capturing the universities. That's all it's always been about. It's got nothing to do with fees. It's got to do with insourcing those workers and controlling uh, the management. But, and, and so these kinds of discussions are never sort of in the mainstream media and so they're never heard. So that's an interesting, it's an interesting point about, about, about that, about Marikana. And it's, it's something that we just don't hear. But what is your theory on that? So it was turf warfare between unions and the, the police got involved. Well, if, 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 if you cruise across to my website, which is com, which is where I keep a record of all of the stuff that I've written in the past, there's a piece that I wrote on 15th August 2012, which basically 
uh, kicked off by saying over the past days, at least nine people have died in clashes at Blondman's Marikana Mine in the Northwest Province. Two police officers, two security guards, three protesters and two other men. Two of them were hacked to death with pangas. And stories like this fascinate me. <laughs> that was my point, because it's not about the untimely loss of life, because that's always regrettable, whether someone dies by violence or accidents. When elephants fight, the grass gets trampled, says the East African proverb. And my fascination around the clashes in the Northwest is, where are the elephants? And you see, if you use that as your starting point, trying in every conflict scenario, you ask yourself, if this conflict goes in a particular direction, who stands to benefit? Yeah. So in Marikana, Amku benefited. Well, Joseph Matunjwa benefited. Absolutely. If you put it in a table, the losers were the people who died. Yes. Their families. And Num. Suru Ramaphosa. Yes. Num. The ANC government. The SAPS, who, by the way, since Marikana, haven't been able to deal with a single protest in any reasonable sense because they are petrified of doing anything seen as heavy-handed. So uh, no one won except one union and one man. And uh, 100%, I, I couldn't agree with and you And that more. union didn't really win either, because if you look in terms of what's happened to Lonman uh, ever since, uh, well, you know, the mining they, sector in general. Yes, well, but, yeah, but Lonman specifically, if you look in terms of their, their share price, I think that tells a story more eloquently than any conspiracy theory I could come up with. Yeah, well, I mean, it's capitalism at play, a share which was uh, somewhere around 150 rand. I think its peak was 300 rand, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, it sits at about uh, about twenty rand today, if I'm not, and it was at thirty cents before they they raised some capital. Sure. Um, so, Canton, the big race war of twenty sixteen. Uh, what's his name? Oh, I forgot his name now. Shaka Sisulu tweeted: "This a race war is going on. We were very quiet in ninety four, but now it's time to fight for what we want. Um, who's going to win?" The race walk. I'm still undecided whether I'll fight for the whites, if I'm really honest with you. Um, a race war. Between the blacks and the whites. Well, that's kind of interesting. Okay. Um, <laughs> let me know when it happens. I'll be at home having a beer. I can't believe you haven't heard of it. It's, it's all over what, Twitter. I mean, what's your, what's your view on racism? Uh, what, you know, and, and, and the whole concept. Sure. Where would you like to start on this? <laughs> well, I, uh, okay. Let, let, let me cut to the chase on this, okay? The... the I draw a distinction between bigotry and racism. Okay, okay. explain that. Okay, yeah. so, Roman, I don't like your face. Unde- that, that, understandable. That, that's bigotry. And I, I think I have a right to dislike Roman's face. I okay. agree, you do. Okay, I, I don't like the way he dresses. I don't like uh, the fact that he does these e-cigarette things. Uh, he does bodybuilding. Oh, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Racism is ultimately about a power structure. Okay. It, it has to be about a power structure. And the whole idea behind apartheid was that it was an institutionalized power structure that used race as its defining factor. Yes, agreed. Now, now if you just agree on that as your definition, the power structure since 1994 has been a democratic power structure. Yes. You know, it's not a black power structure. It's not a white power structure. It's a democratic power structure. Yeah. We voted for the governments that have ruled us since 1994. Mm-hmm. Jacob Zuba is my president. I might not like him personally, but he is my president because we have voted for him uh, as a nation. So the idea that we have institutionalized racism in the country right now just doesn't make any sense to me because the power structure is such 
that that is no longer the case. Now, is there a legacy that is left over from the fact that people benefited um, from the process of apartheid? Absolutely. But that comes back to the same question that we started off with, which was the land question. How do you redress it without making things completely crazy? And worse. Okay, so I, I think, though, some might argue not only the legacy. So the, the, the institutionalism of racism, uh, you know, I think from what I understand, and I, as I say, I don't always agree with these concepts, concepts, but I try to understand the dialogue that's happening. Uh, and it's kind of saying, well, for example, in the universities, they'll argue, well, you know, kind of uh, the university was X amount white people in 1993, and it's still X amount white people, and therefore uh, there's proof that it hasn't sort of changed enough to sort of mimic our society, and it's it's still racist, it's still essentially stuck in the past. Well, the elephant in this particular room that we need to address is mathematics, and and it really goes back to the high school level. Now, there's a couple of things in terms of mathematics that we need to talk about. The first thing in terms of mathematics that we need to talk about is the fact that you have a half million people drop out when they get to their matric year. Now, we have all sorts of hand-wringing that happens on an ongoing basis in terms of why this is happening. I'll tell you why it happens. It's because when Kada Asmal became Minister of Education, he moved the age at which you start school Yes. From six years to seven years. Yes, so he gave us an, a year less to, well, to finish. He, he, well, he gave us a year less. But more importantly, what happens at the end of the process is that you get kids who are in their matric year who are suddenly 18 years old. They turn around and tell their parents, sorry, I'm not doing the school thing anymore, and they leave. Mm. Whereas if that had not been the case, if they were still legally minors by the time they were in their final year, their parents could pretty much insist you are under my roof and you will damn well do as I please and you will complete high school. So let's just park that piece of mathematics for All now. All right, fair enough. The more crucial thing is in terms of the fact that we used to have mathematics on the standard grade and mathematics on the higher grade. And at the time that we were doing mathematics on the higher grade, the number of black African people who completed high school with mathematics on the higher grade suitable for admission to university, in other words, to become our, our doctors, to become our engineers, to become uh, our pilots, to become, uh, uh, to become our chartered accountants. How many people do you think they were completing mathematics on the higher grade? Back when? At the time that they abandoned the higher grade, uh, lower grade standard. 150,000? 5,000. So... And this is where, where the whole question of data so comes into it, because out of that 5,000 people, you have to get every single doctor, every single engineer, every single airline pilot, because the fact of the matter is that flying an aircraft is about mathematics. Hmm. Okay, every single physicist, you know, every single... I thought it was just scientist. feelings that I wanted to be a pilot, and it's not fair and I'm oppressed. Yeah, that's true. You know, I really wanted to fly myself, but... Uh, yes, yes but if you don't understand yeah. vectors, you just can't. Yes, absolutely. So now the issue really comes down to this, that you have a ridiculously small number of black people who qualify to do those things. Okay, so those 5,000 people go on to be very successful and to have great careers. Mm. But we are only going to solve the problem of actually getting the universities back on track at the point at which 
we are upping our game in terms of the number of people who are passing with mathematics. So instead of that, what we have is a situation right now where universities have quotas. Yes, they do. Yes, yeah. and the problem with the quotas is that because you cannot fill the universities in the spaces where people are actually needed, which are sciences and engineering and technology, you suddenly have to up the numbers in terms of the rats and mice uh, degrees, you know, which is basically but, but social sciences. Clanton, a BA in gender studies is highly important. Check your privilege, please. <laughs> Okay, but then is there such a thing as a BA in gender there studies? There is a BA Absolutely. in gender studies. There's also you can also now study a, a BA in, in white privilege. I, I shit you not. Um, but uh, I, I just um, going back. Do you to have that, to be so, white to get a BA in white privilege. Uh, if you're white, you have to feel immense, immense guilt. Um, but but no, you, you you can be any color. Uh, How would I make money out of this? Oh, well, you become a commentator on, you know, these sort of left-leaning, regressive left shows. And CNN, I mean, CNN is giving away shows to, to these kinds of people. But you just write books about why racism is our biggest problem in the country. Do I make money from those books? Of course not, but you act like you do. No, you sell about a thousand books, but your uh, your actual event is very cool. And, you know, there's a Twitter hashtag which trends for a short while. Jeez, I'm and, learning so much from you guys. You, I need you to hang a, out with more white a, guys. You get a few followers. Well, we've we've learned everything we know from non-white guys, actually. Um, oh, non-white. No, we we do not like that term, non-white. Oh, I mean, you know, Steve Biko at this point <laughs> would be calling upon me to actually, you know, haul your. I don't want to say Lily White House. Well, that Steve, would be fair. Steve Biko. Yeah. Well, it is Lily White. I can tell you that much. I don't go near the sun. Um, can I just go, going back to your point? Uh, so. Education is not a good story to tell for our government then. Education is not a good story to tell for our government simply because of the fact that the monster that is the uh, South African Democratic Teachers Union still retains a stranglehold upon the education system in this country, which is why um, so many people uh, devote the bulk of their salaries to putting their kids into private schools, Yeah, which is a complete disaster. Absolutely. But Kenton, there was, there was a, a study done by the Brookings Institute in the U.S. It, it's a, a left-leaning think tank, and they concluded to join the middle class, you need to do three things. You need to finish high school, don't have a child before marriage, and get a job. Just those three things, and inevitably you'll be in the, in the middle class. That's a loaded question, but why do people fail to do that? Well, the getting a job part is incredibly difficult, and that comes back to our labor laws. Yeah. All right, so so let's get back to the getting a job part, uh, the getting pregnant bit. The getting pregnant bit, look, this is actually more nuanced than people actually think it is. Oh, of and course. I, you know, and I know that, uh, you know, particularly in terms of uh, the way in which uh, – Historical white society views uh, black society today, and they look at the fact that you have so many kids being born uh, out of wedlock. There's a failure to actually recognize the fact that there are solid economic reasons for the fact that people don't necessarily end up getting uh, married. And I'm talking about professional people, you know, as in highly paid people who end up not getting married simply because the cost of actually going through the process is huge in terms of, um, in terms of Lebola paying Lobola, paying for, uh, uh, for weddings, all of those things. It, it, is, um, it is a hugely expensive process. And uh, I think to a large extent, 
we have a situation in this country where the actual act of marriage should not be the determining factor. I think what is true, though, is the fact that there are so many families where they are being raised by single parents. Or, or even uh, sibling parents. Yes. That, that is a real problem for us because of the fact that more often than not, when you have a situation where you have a single mother raising a child without herself being employed, that is a time bomb that is actually going to hit us. Well, it's a point often raised uh, many of the podcasts I listen to from the U.S. The, you know, a lot of the conservative kind of uh, commentators argue that the single biggest problem in the U.S. is actually the breakdown of the sort of nuclear family. There's a lot of debate about w- what, what's a nuclear family. But essentially they're saying that it, it's, it's ideally, if you can, you want to have sort of two parents – who are both looking after the kids. Yes, and it doesn't U- take anything and, and, and away and from the US single case, parents. They, they need to be white and heterosexual as well. No, <laughs> it, 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 but no, they're not necessarily saying that. They're saying that in black communities, for example, what's happened there is that uh, they instituted welfare, as an example, and, and welfare sort of payments went through the roof in poor communities, and those poor communities have never been able to pick themselves out of the welfare loop, essentially. Well, now, we, a, we don't have a necessarily that different a problem in South Africa. We've got a large part of our population are wealthy. Look, many of these people cannot – it's not of their own doing. It's not necessarily their own fault. But how do we get out of that loop? Well, if we look specifically in terms of child support grants that we pay in this country right now, I think there is some extent to which those child support grants get exploited. However – I'm very clear that the overwhelming majority of the funds that actually get paid towards child support right now actually go towards child support. Well, and, and now this comes back to a more fundamental question, which is, is the best way to be administering public funds? Because at the end of the day, this is public funds. Is the best way to administer it having a government agency that is then going to say, come and pick up your meals from here, come and pick up your baby formula from here, or does it make more sense just in terms of ensuring the survivability of those kids, that you just pass on the money directly to the parents and recognize that, yes, there will be a percentage that are going to exploit the, that money and use it uh, for hairdos. And, I, have, and I have to be honest. I, a lot of these people are my patients. So I, I feel like I don't necessarily know their lives, but I have some insight. And I agree with you. Most of them do not use the money irresponsibly. They use it for their kids. There is, uh, there was a study done which showed that essentially uh, people are not abusing the uh, the grants, essentially the ch- the child grants, because there's there's been a lot of opinion, uh, and I happen to still hold this opinion, which is against the current evidence, at least the stuff that exists. I don't think it's the greatest study ever done in terms of the methodology, but essentially that um, there are. A fair number of instances where people are having kids because it brings money into the household. Now, if that's even a, a slight chance, we, we're not doing anything to stop that. So, for example, when a 16-year-old girl is having her second child, uh, we we do nothing about that. We 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 she delivers her kid, she goes home, uh, she gets a second child grant, uh, and then if she comes back a year later to give birth to the third child grant. To give birth to the third child, well, slash grants. That, that's the wrong question. I, I would like to look at that very specific problem, though, because, again, this is a question of us not actually trying to say what is the outcome. Now, if you have someone under 16 who's having a child, 
there has been statutory rape committed there. Can we just agree on that up front? Uh, of course. Uh, okay. Well, no, we can't. Uh, I'll tell you why we well, can't. Well, it might have been a fellow uh, Yeah, a fellow uh, because the law, the law says if a, if, if, a, if a 16-year-old has sex with a 14-year-old, we're cool. Yes. And if a 14-year-old has sex with a 12-year-old, we're also cool. Yes. Uh, and an 11 with a 9, we're also cool. Abs- anyway, absolutely. as it goes. But, but can we actually recognize the fact that we don't have a process right now of actually identifying who the parents are in this scenario? And... So there are two things that I'm saying that need to happen. Okay, the first thing that needs to happen is that in the case of what we uh, refer to as sugar daddies, you know, which are uh, people who take advantage of underage girls, yeah, we actually need to have a process. Firstly, of identifying the father of those kids, there has to be that process for a couple of reasons. The one is that if it has been um, a sugar daddy, that person actually needs. To have his sorry butt tossed in jail, sure, immediately. Well, the second thing is, if he's broken the law, I agree with you. Well, he has by definition because if he's over, if uh, if she's if if he's over the age difference and she's if she's, but let's say let's okay. So so that's the starting point. But the second point is, let's say for example that both of you happen to be sixteen at the time at which this kid is brought into the world. If you are that sixteen-year-old dad. As soon as you start earning, I expect a portion of your salary to be immediately diverted towards the upkeep of that kid. What I'm saying is right now, there is no follow-through that is taking place in terms of documenting who, exactly who those parents are and assigning the, that responsibility to, uh, to them. Yes, when you're a 16-year-old, you can't be responsible at that point. However, as soon as you get uh, – uh, you get to the point where you're earning. You do not get a get-out-of-jail-free card. I, I agree, although I think we're talking two separate things because I agree with that. I'm just – so Australia put in a system basically where you you can't get uh, any uh, support uh, for you, – you get the grant for your first child basically, but there's some sort of uh, restriction on you. In other words, to the best of my knowledge, and I, I might be misquoting, but I don't fully disagree with the system even if it doesn't exist, which is essentially uh, that if you are getting a child support grant, in other words, you can't afford your first child, then you must be on birth control, and that would prevent you from then getting a second and a third who you also can't afford. Now, that's a controversial opinion to have. It's probably not very liberal at all because it doesn't assume that you can do whatever the hell you like. Uh, but there's a problem when you become dependent entirely on your society just to cover your, your birthing, essentially. No, but that, that's asking the wrong question. That, that's what, a, so what's the right question? A, it's a, it's, you're looking at it morally, not economically. Economically, you must look at why do people think getting a thousand rand a month is better than not getting it, even though you have a child? Why are people living in such circumstances where they truly believe the burden of a child, but they get a child grant, is better off for them than not that's the issue at hand why are people so damn poor <laughs> well we know why they're damn poor we know we, why they're damn we, poor we, we, but, we, we but to have education like a, and, and and no opportunities job opportunities but to have a moralistic opinion on grants i find it's a bit uh well it's, look, not, get the we could it's not necessarily moralistic it's it's economic as well okay we we literally cannot afford to continue funding our grants endlessly. We have, uh, I think it's close on 16 million or 14 million people on, on grants, whatever. It's, it's, it's a ridiculous an- amount of people. Yeah, but it's a small amount of the GDP. I mean, ESCOM owes more than all the grants put together over a number of years. It's a very, it's not a high 
it's not a high uh, cost exercise you for the state. The, the, I, I don't know the and, and again, no. this takes me back to the point of you know where do we want to go with this, and what is the actual problem that we're trying to solve? Now, what we do know, wherever we happen to be, is that as people get more prosperous, they have fewer kids. Absolutely. Uh, the, this has been the pattern around the world. Yeah, Prosperity leads to fewer kids. Why? Because of the fact that you actually realize that, firstly, you're not dependent on the subsequent generation being your pension fund. Okay. Okay. Good. Historically, in most of the third world, your, your children after were, you. were your pension fund because sure. the whole idea is that um, uh, you raise them and then um, by the time you're in retirement, each of them contributes a little bit towards your upkeep. Now, as we move into a modern capitalist era where people end up with pension funds and um, hopefully being able to support themselves in their uh, their old age, they're able to focus their attention more not on having many kids to support them, but really rather on spending more money on a better quality of life for the kids that they do have. So in other words, you're able to allocate more money to better yeah. education, to better extramurals. And, and is it not also an insight? Is it not an insight into – into understanding how much children cost, uh, how much uh, I- input they require, etc., and saying it's just not. I'm not going to be able to do this for for. for I'm, for I'm five saying that that's kids. a natural that's a one. natural consequence of prosperity. As people yeah. become prosperous, they work that out for themselves. I don't think it's something that you educate them about um, uh, upfront. You know, very specific example. My father was the youngest of eleven brothers and sisters. Yeah, my grandfather was uh, was uh, one of 12. Right. Well, and, you know, if you look in terms of that, I mean, I, I feel for my grandmother, who I never knew because, you know, she died when my father was 13 and his dad died when he was four years old. But um, uh, the fact of the matter is that back in those days, that's what you did. You, you put out kids and uh, a significant number of them died at childbirth back then. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then a whole bunch died before they were teenagers. Exactly. And, uh, and, and, so and then you went to war, of course. Yes. And now you look at uh, um, subsequent generations and, you know, we, we tend to be uh, nuclear families to a large extent, you know, two kids at most. But, yeah. And in some first world countries, they have a negative growth rate. Absolutely. In Japan and all that. Well, uh, Italy. Um, yeah. Has has a negative growth rate, and in fact, this is Europe's biggest problem because Absolutely. they recognise that they have an aging populace and they need to bring in a, uh, a, a whole bunch force. of migrants. Yes. <laughs> okay. So no, except those. So so I think like we are going to sort of one point, which is, uh, you know, Roman wanted to rephrase my uh, my my sort of. Uh, my question, which I, I still think is a valid question, but 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 either way, on, on several things we've kind of pointed towards the concept of prosperity. Yes. So, Notice we haven't talked about apartheid for a while. Yeah. yeah well, yeah, which is cool? which is yeah. wonderful. Yeah. Well, it wasn't prosperous at all, so why talk about it? All right. So 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 well, at least we're moving forward in theory. Um, so how do we get to prosperous? How do we get to prosperity? If you were president, Mr. Pele. <laughs> if I were president. Okay, the first thing that I would do if I were president is I would invest a whack of a load of money into public transport infrastructure. The single thing right now that prevents us from being a successful uh, nation is the ability to move people from where they live, which happen to be townships in the middle of nowhere, to where the jobs are, which happen to be you know, generally quite far away from there. 
if you consider that someone who lives in uh, uh, Lanesia, for example, to drive to Santon on a daily basis, that is a 60-kilometer haul. So, so why do we build a car train uh, which actually doesn't serve any of, actually the, the, of the, the… Actually, the car train actually does serve very well for those who have actually now been prosperous no, enough to exactly. move into the circles. upgraded themselves. But you, I never understood why the car train didn't start in Soweto. Excuse me, don't interrupt the president. He was busy telling us <laughs> how he will save the country. Please. All right, public so, transport. Number one, Okay, the second transport. way, okay, so now the way in which you fix the public transport infrastructure right now is you get rid of this disaster that is called Prasa. So you take Metro Rail out of Prasa and you give Metro Rail to the various metros. So in other words, Metro Rail in Johannesburg or in Gauteng gets run by uh, by Gauteng Transport, so it fits mm. in with the integrated transport plan for this region. Do the same in terms of uh, of Cape Town. I mean, you have the Simonstown Metro Rail uh, uh, line, which is you know one of the most magnificent journeys in the world. Let alone the fact that it's a, a valid commuter uh, line, but it is consistently crime ridden. It's it, it's a dog's breakfast, and the rest of the city's transport infrastructure actually works brilliantly. But every time we try to fix, I'll use Gauteng as a good example. Every time it's been try, they've tried to do it. Uh, the taxis go absolutely insane. Uh, they will not have their turf sort of stepped on, and, and, and then it falls to pieces. I mean, even the BRT, which which is up and running, but it's probably not as successful as it could be because they've had to sort of give way to essentially the taxi industry. I think the BRT is a lot more successful than many people give them credit for, and I think that tends to be because… Um, we don't use it. Yeah, well, you guys don't use it. Um, let me actually show you what… Uh, um, one of those BRT cards looks like. Okay, so he's um, pulling. He's pulling it out of his pocket. Yes, because uh, his wallet. That is. Yeah, my wallet. Because, because Ramon and I have, have probably never seen one. Yeah, you guys have probably never seen one. But uh, um, uh, here we go. This is it. This is this is a Raya Via card. Okay, right. looks and like a looks like a credit card. It looks it like a credit card. As does this is the Cape Town one, by the way. This is a my city. I also use public transport, which, which I, I have seen before. Yeah, which. Uh, but uh, but my point is, Rayavaya actually works. It doesn't work as efficiently as a tram system would work, mm. but it does work. And look, essentially what happened was um, protection money was paid to the taxi industry sure. in the sense that um, the taxi industry was told a, a percentage of profits that come from uh, Rayavaya. Of course, there are no profits, but it is protection money that gets paid by uh, the taxpayers that gets paid to the taxi guys, but that's okay because yeah. you you see it, it, externalities. It, yes, it, you are better off yes, anyway. Because, because at the end of the day, when you're a capitalist and throwing money at a problem is going to solve the problem, mm. it makes economic sense to actually do that. Absolutely, and I, I think that they've managed to do that successfully in the case of uh, of the Rayavaya uh, system. So, look, Rayavaya does actually work. How right. um, train works? You know, I don't think any of us in Gauteng can actually, um, you know, take a view that we could live our lives without Gauteng. So that's the first thing that I do. The second thing that I would do is I would take all land that is historically held by particular traditional leaders and give ownership of the land to the people who live on the land. I thought, now, I thought we had Mr. Pillay, but we seem to have Mr. Mashaba instead. <laughs> 
All right. So you'd give you'd give the land, and what what would that do? I mean, what's the net effect? Okay, very specific example. How many of you guys have ever been down to um, uh, Port St. John's or uh, the Wild Coast generally? Uh, many many years ago. Yeah, yes. me too. It's one of the most absolutely beautiful parts of the world. Yeah, my colleagues who work there tell me such. Yes, but the place is a complete uh, disaster. Why? Because land gets allocated based on whichever chief happens to control a particular area uh, at his whim or fancy. And so people, because they don't own the land, don't end up developing it because, you know, nothing gives you an incentive to actually um, upgrade yourself than actually having ownership. If you look at the East Bank of Alexander, where people have had ownership of the land now for the past 20 years. They're they're magnificent homes. I think Soweto is the same story. Exactly, yes. Mm. So ownership actually immediately transforms, um, you know, people from that very feudal setup that we have, particularly in the Eastern Cape. Uh, The single thing to my mind that can immediately uplift the Eastern Cape and make it one of the most economically productive places in the world is ownership. Uh, okay, so how do people reconcile their sort of love of the chief and their belief in their culture and, and that sort of system which has been around for hundreds or thousands of years? Well, we need to take our lesson from, uh, from the British because, you know, <laughs> uh, the king used to rule supreme and then suddenly there were a bunch of people who came up with a Magna Carta and they said, actually, Guy, we're still going to respect you. You're still going to be head of state. However, um, from this point onwards, Things are going to be running differently. Yeah, you, you don't run the show, uh, but uh, but we respect you absolutely. Yeah. And here's some cash. Yes, and here's some cash. So yes. can't then, all right. So transport number one, title deeds number two. Basically, get rid of tribalism. Yeah, and if you had no, I'm not two, suggesting for a second we get rid of tribalism. What I'm suggesting we do is get rid of the economic underpinnings that allow people to be subjugated by people in rural areas. It's a feudal structure that we had. You know, the most crucial thing that happened in KZN post-1994 is that the ANC was running the cities. They populated it with people who were then sending money back to the rural areas, which meant they were able to break the stranglehold of the people from Inkata who were running those areas. Mm. And so it transformed the rural areas overnight. Okay. And... Any final points other than transportation and title deeds, number three? No, I think baby steps are actually essential. You know, we try to do too many things. Come at, on, uh, free Wi-Fi, uh, free internet for the whole country. Well, I think, you know, starting Ramon's with… Uh, great, uh, great hope. Yeah, starting it with is. free Wi-Fi on the public transport system would be a good place to do. Absolutely. All right. Well, that's, uh, that's essentially an hour of uh, a just, lot of topics. Just a lot of swear words, a lot of privilege, a lot of… Systemic something, what's it? I didn't um, say fuck even once. <laughs> well, now you did. <laughs> well, thank you, thank you for joining us. It's uh, been great to have you and uh, interesting, uh, interesting points of view. You know, it's, it's always nice to hear another side of the argument. So I, I really appreciate it. Mr. K, thank you so much for coming and hopefully we will have you back soon. Okay. Where's the bar? <laughs> the, the, the bar is just outside. We'll, we'll get you there just now. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, you can send us your hate mail, uh, Renegade Report Mailbox at gmail.com. Uh, you can uh, also catch us on Twitter. Uh, our Twitter handle for the show is Renegade underscore report. Ramon's uh, uh, Twitter handle, Roman or Ramon, but spelt Roman, Kabanek, uh, and uh, mine is at Jonathan underscore wit. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.
Cliffcentral.com.